Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? I am cowering currently from Storm Kira. Mm. But other than that, Ed, I'm grand. Yes, I've been seeing lots of reports of this, of people talking about the, the storm approaching and... Uh, as someone who has lived through a couple of, of big storms since I've lived over here uh, in Florida, uh, you uh, have my sympathy there. <laughs> even when they're even when they're not like wildly deadly or like they're not like mass like massively destructive, they're just not pleasant to live, to kind of live through. Oh, the anxiety that I had this morning from about five a.m. to about nine a.m. was uh, peak. I have to say it was howling and dark mm. and grey and they were strange because it went very clear and crisp but still apparently like 85 miles per hour gales we're expecting I don't feel like we had this today so maybe it might be tomorrow I don't know I'm scared of nature nature is scary yes nature is very very scary uh, I was we were talking beforehand how we had some quite strong winds around around here in the week and a bunch of trees got knocked down so I've been walking to work and just having to kind of hop over a the, the trunk of a tree that just got blown down on Thursday night which is always kind of weird because it can sometimes take a few days for the debris to get uh, tidied away I mean for the it's it's weirder when there's an actual hurricane or something debris gets cleared away fairly quickly because everything obviously the state's on like an emergency footing and everyone's kind of prepared for it mm. but when you just had like a day where the weather was a bit bad it's just yeah. like well this will get this will get cleaned up at some point <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week and obviously it's hollywood's biggest night as we're recording this, the Oscars are still several hours away, but a lot of people are standing around on red carpets talking and making idle chatter at the moment in something that always seems to me to just be like a real miserable experience and something like that I would have to assume is just incredibly anxiety inducing for a lot of the people involved, particularly like if you're a presenter and they're like, okay, go out and just make small talk for hours and hours and hours. It's got to be pretty tiring and exhausting. And uh, I thought, you know, obviously we're recording this before the Oscars is going to happen and people will hear this after the Oscars have been announced. So I thought uh, it might be fun just to start things off by making predictions so that people can kind of mock us for being completely wrong. So uh, who, what film do you think, Emily, will walk away with Best Picture? I mean, now that 1917 walked away with BAFTA and yet that is mm. such an immensely British film... I mean, it would be really lovely if Parasite won it, but in yeah. terms of what will actually win it, I have a horrible feeling it would be Once Upon a Time. <sighs> yeah. Uh, I mean, but that's it. There's the difference between what I want to win and what I think will win. Um, yeah. And given the way that the voting system works now, do you not think it will be what we, <laughs> what we want? I don't know. I'm open. I'm open. It could be another... Moonlight Beauty again. Mm. 
yeah, that would be that would be my like absolute hope would be Parasite winning because I just think that's such a wonderful movie, and Bong Joon Ho's just such a vibrant, exciting director, and it's been so nice seeing him go out on the trail for the awards this year and being you know fated so much for having created a really wonderful movie but it's kind of hard to imagine that happening given the run that 1917 has been on over the last couple of weeks obviously it won the BAFTA it won best drama at the Golden Globes it won a couple of big awards at like the PGAs and the DGAs and things like that which are often seen as like really indicative of where um like producers and directors are looking and they're got two of the more powerful blocks um i think i wouldn't mind 1917 winning i haven't seen it so i don't know if it's good enough or not but like it seems like a perfectly fine film mm. um i would like it if they do what they have done in you know several times in the recent years and have a split between picture and director and give like if they give picture to 1917 and director to Bong Joon-ho then that'd be uh fantastic or it'd be even better if they did it the uh other way uh if they you know Parasite walks away with best hit best picture which would be uh an historic result because I don't believe a foreign language film has ever won best picture and they've very rarely been uh nominated but um yeah I think that would be my ideal would be you know parasite picking up one of the two big ones and then i don't know in a lot of the other categories people i like are front runners for movies that i don't necessarily think are great <laughs> like people talking about laura dern winning for marriage story i think she's very good in that movie it's not a movie that i like um massively high on but you know, uh, I like Joaquin Phoenix in general. I'm not, I don't particularly think that what he does in Joker is that interesting. Um, but yeah, that, like, it's one of those things where you kind of think, ah, I, I'm, I'm going to be happy that you have an Oscar. Yeah. It's just not necessarily <laughs> what you win it for. But, you know, the, uh, the, the idea of Oscar winning actor Joaquin Phoenix, I think sounds good to me. Just, you know, it would be nice if it was for inherent vice. <laughs> yes, agreed. Hard agree. Uh, so we'll go on to other awards news, which is that the Independent Spirits Awards were um, were held last night. And generally, I think there were some reviews that I personally, some uh, results that I personally was very, very happy to see. Uh, Adam Sandler won Best Actor for Uncut Gems and gave a wonderful speech in which he did it all as an Adam Sandler character. Yeah. Which was really wonderful to see. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed him shouting out Bobby Boucher, uh, his character <laughs> from The Waterboy a movie that I remember loving a lot when I was 13 and he was just I, it was just such a wonderfully charming and funny and self-deprecating way to end you know a, a award season that hasn't been particularly kind to Uncut Gems which I think is a travesty because I think it's a wonderful movie and he was absolutely fantastic in it but it was really nice seeing him get to go on there and just do his thing and just like really kind of bring the house down he was so funny and in embracing of everything and I think what was so great about what he was talking about in his speech was a lot of kind of appreciating that maybe he wasn't the most independent spirit and yet the mm. way that he managed to turn it into essentially kind of a stand-up almost SNL monologue yes 
yeah, like it was a a, a weekend update kind of bit. Completely. That you would, uh, roll on to do for sure. Like it was so like aware and kind of meta, and the way that he kind of twisted it into like, oh well, you know, I was voted best personality, not best good looking and the fact is that you know the Oscars they can have that like we're the people with the best personality and I think that's true like Sandler may be mainstream as we see in terms of those comedies but actually he's a fucking hard worker he works as hard as like any fucking mumblecore guy out there he churns them out and he makes deals and he noted the fact that you know he probably makes more than a lot of people in that room but he was so Mm -hmm. affable and like appreciative that he'd been kind of welcomed and I think the most interesting term that he used was the Adam Sandler ecosystem mm-hmm. that he appreciates that Adam Sandler is almost kind of like an entity out width of himself and yes. that he has such a bigger perspective of how Hollywood and the film industry works in general because he probably appreciates that if he hadn't done Punch Drunk Love he wouldn't still be doing murder mystery and uncut gems within the same sort of 18 month period and I think that's the thing that's lacking because so many people are, are I think in the industry despite the fact that you know you you have this weird paradox between you know these multimedia conglomerates who are kind of doing big spans and like franchises but there's not this kind of middle range indie thing anymore that was really big in kind of the late 90s and throughout the kind of beginning of the 2010s and that was the ecosystem like you can't have grassroots independent filmmakers and then fucking like 50 million dollar films you need something in between you need that kind of training ground and development you know, grassroots indie stuff is a great way for people to make their own thing and show what they're about. But if you don't have the middle ground, then how are you going to be able to trust anyone with anything bigger, budget-wise or whatever? Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I just felt like he managed to sort of cut through, but also bring together so many different strands of what filmmaking is about today. And that mm. he was just so grateful. Like, he was really funny, but managed to not be in that kind of, like, pretentious way of, like, oh, you know, thank you for the words. And I just love that he said to his wife, I love you, I love hanging out with you. Mm, <laughs> what, yeah. what a better way to thank someone. But, yeah, it was cracking, and I will definitely be watching it over and over again. And also, can we please give a massive shout-out to the um, gay chorus of Los mm-hmm. Angeles? The Gay Men's Choir of Los Angeles, absolutely beautiful, as featured in Six Feet Under, which we all know is my favourite show ever, 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 probably tied with the book group, but that's another story. Yeah, they did an absolutely beautiful job, and uh, I love seeing Laura Dern that happy. I think that was her Lifetime Achievement Award, really. <laughs> yeah, that was absolutely delightful. I really enjoyed all the all of the pics leading up to it of gay moments from various <laughs> movies that people didn't realise were gay. Or, you know, just talking about Renee Zellweger's entire campaign for Judy and things like that. Uh, I thought there were, like, these wonderful, wonderfully silly, specific choices that they made. And then just celebrating Laura Dern for a solid minute. As we all should, every day. Every day. Um, at least one. At least one minute. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, in, in other terms of other um, wins at the Independent Spirit Awards, the Safdie Brothers won Best Director. Direct, yeah. It, Yes, yeah, it's, it's directed director directors. Awards, even, yeah, yeah. Even though there's two of them, the um, we'll allow it. Yeah, 
and uh, they did a very funny bit where they got on stage and they both read their speeches out simultaneously <laughs> um, where they were both saying different things and it was overlapping dialogue and it was very, very reminiscent of the intense discomfort that emerges from watching uh, Uncut Gems, <laughs> which I thought was, was, was really wonderful. Willem Dafoe won for Best Supporting Actor for The Lighthouse, which also won Best Cinematography. And you and I, I don't think we talked about it on the show, I think we talked about it off mic, but neither of us are particularly keen on The Lighthouse. No! But, no! But of the two awards that it deserves i really feel like supporting actor and cinematography are definitely definitely the ones oh without a doubt without a doubt like the lighthouse if it were actually a comedy would be hilarious but because it's not uh difficult difficult um (laughs) yeah but like just just in terms of sheer force defoe deserves it i just I think the thing that I struggle with the lighthouse in particular is that it's the idea that like oh men going crazy and moving their arms around and speaking loudly like that's you know a big that's a big hoo ha that's what acting is whereas it's like I'm sorry has anyone seen the Florida Project like Willem Dafoe is absolutely perfect in that it doesn't mm. need to be acting is not necessarily being the loudest. <laughs> the loudest craziest person in the room it's about who your character is and that's it like the lighthouse is just so heavily al- allegorical like either you get on board with it or not but for me it just like fits into that same kind of category as mother where it's like yeah we oh, know exactly what you mean it's it's not particularly um it's it's just not as deep as you think it is sweetheart it really isn't <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and the other kind of big awards, Renee Zellweger won for uh, Judy, which I think she's the odds-on favourite to repeat that uh, at the Oscars tonight. Uh, and the the farewell, which I don't think was nominated for any Oscars, won Best Picture, which is uh, was very nice. It's yeah. a very nice movie. And yeah, I was just it was just uh, as well, even though again not a movie that either is are massively keen on. Marriage Story won the Altman Award, which is essentially their Best Ensemble Award. And uh, that's always the thing I forget that the Indie Spirits Awards do. And I always think that's like a great, uh, that's a great category to have, to recognise that sometimes you just have a cast who are all just like serving the work well and who are just like a movie has been like well cast in terms of people going through and saying who would fit these particular roles. And uh, even though, yeah, like Marriage Story doesn't particularly work for me, I do feel like the strength of that cast is enough to kind of warrant its inclusion in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked, uh, we kind of made mention of SNL uh, there a second ago, and uh, very exciting news, uh, certainly for you and I, <laughs> was that this week it was announced that John Mulaney is going to be hosting the show for the third time, and that he will be on with David Byrne as his musical guest with uh, presumably performing stuff from his American Utopia show that he's currently doing on Broadway. And, yeah, just very, very excited by both of those choices. But it does mean that um, John Mulaney had to drop out of a show in Toronto uh, Mm. where Lorne Michaels ended up writing an open letter to the people of Toronto asking for an apology and that apologising and asking for them to forgive him and that John Mulaney should be allowed to host SNL. I mean, that's some... That's some serious... I I always forget that Lorne Michaels is Canadian because he doesn't really act like a Canadian a lot of the time. 
No, he's so ruthless. <laughs> he really so. is. Is he? Is he the one? The one that kind of proves the rule. The one exception. Like everyone yeah, else the, is absolutely lovely. All the really rapacious capitalists move to uh, move to America. <laughs> That's and, an excellent and, point. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and also in uh, David Byrne news, it was also announced that his show American Utopia is going to be released as a film directed by Spike Lee, oh, which is fuck yes. very exciting. <laughs> uh, presumably it'll be a concert movie in, you know, the um, swimming to Cambodia style. Oh, um, that would be amazing. But, I'd love to see Spike Lee kind of homage Jonathan Demme. That would be beautiful. Yeah, and he is... Um, it's kind of a thing he's done a fair few times over the years. Spike Lee is filming like stage shows. He did one about Rodney King a few years ago, which I, I believe is still on Netflix, which is very good. And obviously, you know, he did the original Kings of Comedy and stuff like that. Um, so he is someone who I feel is really good at capturing live performances. And with a collaborator like David Byrne, who feel, thinks so much in terms of cinema, we could get something really special from that. Mm. Uh, and also in um, filmed performance news, uh, it was announced that Disney are going to release the filmed performance of Hamilton, which was filmed, I believe, in 2016, because it's with the original cast. And at the time, there was a lot of talk of like, oh, would you ever do a Hamilton movie? And they basically said, oh, no, yeah, we just filmed a performance and that will get released at some point in the future. And there was just a question of who were the ones who were going to release it. And uh, so Disney are putting it out and it's going to be in like, you know, thousands and thousands of theatres. And one of the things about this that I found really interesting was that immediately like people like uh, Kyle Turner who's a great film writer and someone who knows uh, just an insane amount of stuff about theatre and is you know, a real expert on it just basically said so you're just doing the thing that like National Theatre Live have been doing for like 10 years at this point mm. but on a larger scale and that's the thing that's kind of quite interesting to me is that there's nothing like the, the, the press release tried to make it sound like oh it's this like Innovative mix, innovative mix of cinema and theatre, and trying to make it all like really will give a sense of intimacy. And like I've seen, you know, National Theatre Live film performances of plays, and like they all do that. <laughs> they all like figure out how to you know place the camera so that you have a sense of immediacy to it, and that it's like, giving you a perspective on the performance that you would not have if you were just seeing it, you know, in a stage, uh, seeing it on the stage. Um, but the thing about it that is interesting is like the size of it. You know, the, the Disney are doing this on a what will presumably be like a much bigger scale than a lot of those simulcast or those kind of like releases of pre-recorded performances usually are done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, in other Disney news, uh, it was announced this week that Sam Raimi may or may not be directing the next Doctor Strange movie, Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness after the original director scott derrickson was uh let go from the film uh, a couple of weeks back and uh for me i have monkey's paw situation of like me fairly often sitting around wondering when sam raimi's going to do another movie because it's now been seven years since he directed oz and the great uh, oz the great and powerful and then you know the wish being granted but you're like oh he gets to direct a sequel to one of the more middling <laughs> Marvel movies, great. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'm excited for anything that Sam Raimi does, and like Doctor Strange feels like a character that would be suited to his sensibilities, but maybe not working within kind of like the Disney machine because he also made Oz the Great and Powerful with Disney, and that didn't really work out great. Uh, although Rachel Vice is 
gorgeous in that movie. She's brilliant. So, she's, she's yeah, she's fantastic in in some. I mean, the favorite step on my neck in your riding boots, Rachel. Please, and then <laughs> you know, talk about history adjunctly. Like I'm, I'm fine with it with adjacent facts. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, finally, this week, uh, the we found out that uh, Kirk Douglas had passed away. Kirk Douglas, obviously, the you know kind of actor of you know classic hollywood films who uh was 103 i want to say he was uh incredibly uh old and you know kind of like veteran um actor who you know is kind of very closely associated with classic hollywood and things like that but uh his death i think was uh an opportunity a good opportunity for people to kind of discuss allegations that were made against him in terms of you know accusations that he had raped Natalie Wood, you know, kind of the the uh, actress also of classic Hollywood who, who passed away in suspicious circumstances in uh, the early eighties, and I thought it was very. It's always complicated when someone who you know kind of has this big legacy passes away and who has fairly credible accounts of wrongdoing against them, because the response uh from you know people who either are just kind of like total defenders of them or people who are just kind of like admirers and don't want to kind of like be uncivil or whatever are like you know this isn't the time and you're kind of like when is the when time? when is the time because <laughs> he's now dead there's not really going to be another time after this that people are really going to be talking about Kirk Douglas. So there's not really going to be another time to discuss the fact that, you know, he was credibly accused of, of raping Natalie Wood when she was uh, 17 years old. She was she was 16 and the... Oh, 16, um, sorry. Yeah, no, not at all. She was, she was 16 and serious content warning for anyone who wants to look into it more. Um, I found it incredibly distressing to read um, and it's it's hard to believe that that didn't happen <laughs> um mm. it's so horrific and that you know it's it's very likely that she was not the only one which is horrible and, and that natalie wood was so brilliant and so talented and that yet again she seemed to be really sort of prey to just yeah like again however strong and brilliant she was just like incredibly vulnerable all again and yeah and, and i mean we see this after sort of kobe bryant as well mm. we're still figuring out i mean it's good that we're kind of getting it all out in the open but how do we protect the people who are being who are traumatized and are bringing this forward how do we actually deal with people who have done this um and i think that's it like you know, if you if you can't talk frankly about something that has essentially been an open secret, when a one hundred and three year old man dies, then you know, when when can you? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think it's 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 obviously um, very complicated, and I think one of the things that I think was quite heartening about it, I guess, was the sheer number of people who, upon the announcement of his death were posting like gifts of Natalie Wood or posting, you know, links to articles about it. There was not this, there was a general sense of people being like, yes, you know, he made some great movies and, you know, he, he did good things like, you know, with Spartacus, um, 
essentially breaking the back of the Hollywood blacklist by hiring communist writers or people who have been blacklisted as communist writers and things like that. But there's also this horrible thing that he, you know, is alleged to have done. And Exactly. Uh, it's it's not a moral ledger of like if you do enough good then that that undoes the fact that you I know we're saying allegations, but speaking hypothetically, if one were to one and I mean anyone, anyone at all, were to do work against, you know, the sort of put putting putting forward writers from the blacklist or creating great stories of solidarity that have echoed throughout movie history or you know but that doesn't necessarily undo if you destroy someone's security in their own body and their personhood frankly Mm. but you're right ed like that's how i felt as well like what was so heartening was that i didn't realize for a good like 10 or 15 minutes it was kirk douglas who had died my whole timeline was just absolutely full of natalie wood being brilliant Mm. and everyone saying this is a good day to remember natalie wood and i think that's the first time I remember in recent history where we have focused more on the person who was wronged rather than the person who wronged them. So yeah, maybe, maybe a slight tip in the culture. Mm. I don't know. Uh, So, you know, obviously we were just talking about, you know, very heavy issues about a man who, you know, is alleged to have done done terrible things and the question of forgiveness and, you know, well, the, the moral ledger of someone's life. So I think it's, only right that we go on to talk about a sad horse and uh, in, in that case we're going to be talking about Bojack Horseman the Netflix series created by Raphael Bob uh, Waxberg who uh, which just ended its run uh, the other week and after six seasons and uh, you and I Emily are both big fans of the show and what it's done in terms of humor in terms of the way it balances very at times very uh, distressing topics with just one of the highest gag rates in um in modern comedy just like a denseness of humor and of comedy that is really quite startling to see particularly in an era that has largely been defined by comedies that are joke and episode sometimes more kind of sort of uh, uh, funny dramas <laughs> um so uh we wanted to kind of like talk about it and mark the the end of the show uh as much as we talked about the the good place uh, last week uh especially because i feel like those two shows whilst obviously having different uh, creative teams for the most part although i'm fairly sure there's probably some cast overlap in there somewhere because Bo because uh bojack horseman just had such a ludicrously overqualified supporting cast as evidenced by this last season um i feel like those are both shows that kind of had a similar interest in exploring the human condition through you know overly elaborate background sight gags where where to start where to, where start? to, st- uh, where to start one of the things um that i find really great about bojack horseman and you and i were kind of like discussing this prior uh, in our kind of like whatsapp conversations prior to to recording how it is a show that is on the face of it kind of ridiculous obviously it's a very broad satire of hollywood in which the world is kind of populated by humanoid animals and regular humans and you know there's sign gags at a, a dizzying rate but it also is a show that deals very frankly at times with questions of trauma with 
addiction, with abuse, with uh, particularly like systemic abuse within the um, film and television industry. Uh, and it does so in a way which I find you know quite remarkable, which is that as the series kind of subject matter got darker and darker, particularly you know, if you compare it against the first season, which was often kind of very cutting, uh, but you know didn't really kind of delve into the emotions that much. Um, as the series subject matter got darker and darker, the jokes got sillier and sillier, and that's such an impressive balancing act for any show to uh, achieve, let alone one that starts from the premise of you know saying okay this is kind of our world but half the people are animals <laughs> it's um i love that it was never ever really like explained it just absolutely like makes sense that mm. that they are and i think that's particularly in the first season there's this idea of like i think it just starts off being like it, it it's not simply just celebrities um, yeah. who are these animals. There's just this general sense of everyone's kind of a bit different. And I think what I really love about it is that it actually digs down into appealing to our animal nature as humans anyway. It, mm. you know, it's, it's not necessarily anthropomorphized animals. It's reanimalizing humans. <laughs> And, put, yes. and putting us thoroughly back in the concrete jungle that Hollywood manages to emphasise so well. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, one of the one of the running jokes that never failed to amuse me in the show is just the occasional brief brief glimpses of the animalistic nature of the animal characters, just kind of like interrupting their normal day. So in the, I believe it's in the finale there's a establishing shot often these are in establishing shots as well so they're just like quick funny gags there's like a woman who is a cat up a tree and there's two like firemen getting ready to kind of like carry her down and she just goes i'm really sorry that this happens again (laughs) or something like that (laughs) it's just like such a simple gag in an episode that's otherwise fairly harrowing and heavy and then uh, there's also like a bit where i think it's outside of princess carolyn's office where there's like two rams who are both looking down at their phones and they walk into each other and butt heads (laughs) it's It's so simple like some of my favorite bits in bojack horseman are simply (laughs) that animals being the animal in in a one of the episodes of this final season uh as i'm sure we will go into in greater detail but one of the bits is uh that uh, the elefante restaurant gets a under new management between Mr. Peanut Butter, um, his on-off fiance Pickles, and their sort of third in their throuple, Joey Gogo. Joey Pogo, sorry, Joey Pogo. Um, voiced by Hilary Swank of all people. Voiced by Hilary Swank, which again is a point <laughs> I'll come back to. But the restaurant has lazy Susans, and there's simply just <laughs> a a couple of uh, rodent type creatures, and we realise one of them is a hamster who just eats all of the all of the food from the lazy susan as it spins around yes um and because he's a hamster and that's it that's that's it that's the gag and Mm. it's great there's also some really sinister ones um i remember from previous series where there's a sheep waiting to get in a cab and there's a wolf with like a sheep 
sort of like jacket on and mm. just growls at her and she just looks really nervous and you're like oh god like and i think but i think that's what bojack one of the things that bojack horseman does so well is incorporate that like it manages to be more real than reality sometimes mm, yeah i think you really see that in the uh was it the second or third season where they had tackled the story of like the t- the, the beloved tv host that um is alleged to have you know had some sort of sexual uh, indiscretion and, and you know abuse against various people he worked for where that's a very heavy subject to, to tackle and it was also I, I was reading an interview with Raphael um, Bob Waxberg where he was talking about how like that was written before like the Cosby allegations had really broken through into the public but you know they had obviously they had all lived in Hollywood they all knew that you know there are all these stories about Bill Cosby being a rapist out there, and so they mm. wanted to tell that story. And then, as it when the episodes aired, it's kind of like everyone was like, "Wow, you were really up on the Cosby stuff." And it's like, "Wow, it was just a you know a t- total uh, coincidence that the uh, episodes came out just after Landlord fan uh, Hannibal Burris <laughs> started uh, kind of talking about it on stage." But it was. It was really interesting, like seeing that turn the t- the show took, because I think at the same time they're doing that sort of stuff. Like I'm pretty sure that's the season where also Todd is building his own theme park. Yeah, and like there is such a wonderful farcical quality to um to like those side stories. And I feel like one of the things about the show that I always loved was it has like a real total commitment to both of its its elements to all of its storylines regardless of how kind of ridiculous and silly they are they are 100 percent in on as in this final season like the whole thing where uh princess carolyn has adopted a child who she initially called untitled princess carolyn project mm. todd uh, becomes the living nanny for her, but before they've reached that arrangement, arrangement, uh, he, you know, is kind of strong arms into looking after her for a little while, and he ends up taking all these meetings in which he's talking about, um, oh, how he's involved with this uh, untitled Princess Carolyn project, and then suddenly everyone starts to like wanting to have meetings with him because they think it's some sort of film, <laughs> and everything he says kind of sounds like the same sort of thing you would say about a child and a movie and it's this this like real wonderful escalation of ridiculousness that ends with someone saying to him name your price and he just goes jonathan which is (laughs) such a a wonderfully silly joke but it it really does feel like something that someone has sat down and thought you know okay what's the funniest version of this thing at the same time that like you know bojack is at that point you know he's just out of rehab and he's trying to like rebuild his life and he's trying to come to terms with you know all of the pain that he's caused to people and um uh, diane is you know in chicago trying to you know write this book of essay personal essays that aren't coming and struggling with writer's block and all of those storylines are you know all treated with a similar level of commitment i feel that belies the fact that they are all in completely different registers in terms of their like seriousness but even when they're very serious they can often be incredibly funny i think it's committed throughout right because you Mm -hmm. don't you don't have to be serious i think i think serious is a is a term that we often talk about when actually what we mean is commitment Mm -hmm. and and it commits to every strand and it and that's what i think manages to make it tonally so impressive because 
it never feels oh that felt way off to make this gag about animals at this point or like to have there's always a little kind of there's a moment of pathos and there's a moment of out and out wordplay silliness um and again with like so it's philip baker hall who does an absolutely magic job as hank hippopopolis who is this kind of cosby like figure and the way that diane goes on her book tour and how she diane is is consistently particularly in the last couple of seasons kind of takes on the mantle of like you know megan tuhi and other other journalists who are women who are bringing out you know sort of me too and, and and trying to bring these stories to the fore and we don't see the full roundedness of Hippopolis's character. We understand his influence and his leverage. But I think what's interesting is that in this final season of Bojack, we are asked to reckon that we have been thoroughly in Bojack's head and he is ultimately very sympathetic and empathetic despite the horrific things that he has done. And yet mm. I think the power of Bojack Horseman is that it never asks us to absolve him but it yeah. is but it is making a case to forgive him and to hope for better because as fundamentally flawed and that sounds kind of <laughs> that doesn't quite sound deep enough but i mean that like fundamentally flawed as he is there is still a grain of him that is aware of doing better like in a real sort of like oprah um sense and i guess what would I've forgotten. I think Oprah already had an animal kind of te- like animal spin of her name, Orca. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, but, probably, yeah. Probably, but in that real like Oprah sense of now you know better, do better, mm. and that and that we see the real struggle that Bojack has to kind of like try and overcome the generations of trauma that his family has been through, and also the power in you can't. You only have to do that for yourself, like. As, as natural as it is to look for role models what you actually need is like the support of your peers but to try and find one person to do that for other than yourself like with hollyhock and yet it is still so ridiculous like my absolute favorite moment of this series oh god there's so many but like there's a really beautiful gag where bojack is talking about talking to the um, HR department at Wesleyan to become the new drama teacher and apparently mm-hmm. Raven Simone <laughs> might get it. Oh, yeah. Raven, always circling, pretending my doom. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, yeah. that's just so her. And I was like, <laughs> double over in my kitchen and then, the, you know, so soon the, um, the HR department phones him back and says, oh, you know, Raven's been doing it somewhere else and qu- to quote Raven, never more. <laughs> which, which is just so gloriously silly and in-jokey and Hollywoody and nudge-nudge. And, but, it, but it never, it feels as smart and as, and as much making a comment in its silliness as all of the very deep emotional and... I don't even want to say satire. I think Bojack Horseman is polemic because mm. satire would be a bit too kind of like wink, wink. But it, but it is trying to ask us all to be somehow better, but in a way that acknowledges our flaws in a different way that the Good Place did, as we were talking about the other episode, Ed. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, as well in 
I think it was in Variety, the interview that I read with with Waxberg, where he talked about how he seemed very, he seemed kind of very reluctant to take on the 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 label of satire for the show because um, there's a certain like uh, it seems because there's like a certain weightiness to the term satire or like there's a certain self regard for it, which I don't think that the the stuff in Bojack really has. And also, I think that kind of con- that contributed to, I think, some of the sniffy early reviews that kind of met the show. Because um, I I don't know if you read the reviews of the the first season when it came out, but they were overwhelmingly very kind of middling. Um, I remember particularly the one in the AV Club gave it like a C because they put out the first six episodes for review because that's you know generally what netflix do they send you like the first half of the season and the first half of that show of first season is not it's not like the strongest the show would ever be by any stretch of the imagination it's, it's, it's still pretty funny and it's like sets up the world well enough but it's not really the show that a lot of people fell in love with later and yeah i remember i remember like the comments for that were all people saying like yeah hey i know this is only best on the first six episodes but if anyone wants to watch all of it in the back half it gets really good and really interesting and that was kind of the thing that made me say oh i should check this show out because it was a show that really grew and changed and evolved within its first season and as it went on i remember exactly that feeling watching the very first season of being like oh well okay i guess it's kind of it's kooky and cute that there's animals and oh hollywood yeah it's a bit fucked up who knew what a surprise when it first came out and being like well i feel like there's enough kind of interesting i had it very much on as like background wallpaper of tv as i often will do with a lot of stuff i remember thinking okay there's a little a couple of moments that made me kind of come back to it and really pay more attention than just uh having it on whilst i was doing other stuff but I remember reading an interview, I can't remember where, with Raphael Borg-Werksberg, where he was saying, like, yeah, the whole plan was to kind of develop this darker, more emotional side as we went along, kind of season by season. And he was kind of mm. shocked that people were like, oh, there just doesn't seem to be much to this in the first season. And he's like, oh, maybe I should have just gone bolder and harder first off. And I haven't watched the first season for a really long time. And it'll be interesting to go back and watch it in retrospect, knowing where we end up. I think it's phenomenal, like, as a meta-narrative of the character arc of the show, rather than solely Mm. Bojack. Like, Bojack actually makes leaps and bounds, but the show did as well. Yeah. Because the first was a reasonably limp satire of Hollywood, essentially. Because it didn't... Because they hadn't brought in all those really strong character elements. Yeah, in in that... Again, I think in that... Uh, maybe it was in Vulture this one, but like they they asked um, Bob Weisberg what he if there were any jokes that he kind of regretted from early on. If there was any kind of like stuff that he looks back on, thinking, yeah, we could have done that better. And he says, yeah, if if I'd make the show now, I wouldn't have had Bojack be making. I wouldn't have uh, Bojack having sex with Emily Mortimer in the first episode oh, because yeah. he was like, you know, the essential thing of that joke is, oh, it's like just a woman but then it turns out the woman is famous and you know now we think ah, it's kind of weird that we're having a person who is real have sex with this horse in our cartoon show mm. with uh without asking them as well because it wasn't her voice in the character i don't think it was just you know they just picked a name and decided to apply it and and then he says and then we came up with a better version of that joke with character actress Margot Martindale, where the joke is that there's this woman in the show who then it just turns out is actual 
Margot Martindale, who then has uh, an incredible arc throughout the, uh, the course of the show uh, and gets to come back for the finale or the final few episodes, which I was very pleased to see because she was always one of the absolute highlights. Uh, and I liked her, her kind of agreeing to Todd's fake kidnapping plot at the end because of her giving him a video game or something. And Todd just seems really baffled by it. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I don't remember that at all. I don't know if that's the thing that actually happened. But I liked the idea of her having this really rich inner life in which she has this tremendous sense of guilt of having wronged Todd. And Todd himself is just kind of like, OK, cool, go for it. Mm, mm. Uh, and I also enjoyed them continuing that joke with uh, famous person Zach Braff uh, and indie filmmaker Nicole Holofsen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and uh, Margot Martindale getting off scot-free because the judge can't believe that she's never been in one of Nicole Holofsen's movies. I mean, she's needed. She's required. It is, it is essential. Like, that's, that's beautiful. I think the thing is that I feel slightly uncomfortable with in terms of Zach Braff being involved is that it does feel a little bit um for as much as bojack horseman is brilliant in terms of like looking at the nuance in terms of how we as a society actually deal with uncomfortable or abusive relationships like zach braff is going out with florence Pugh, and there's like a more than 20 year age gap and i know it's I know it's a personal thing, but I can't help but feel uncomfortable about it. Mm. And um, the fact that he's in Bojack Horseman and there's no kind of... I mean, maybe this was all this all happened and was well before they got together. But I, I worry that, you know, it's it's just so difficult to... You know, who's, who's, who's using what to kind of... I don't even know what the colour would be. But do you know what I mean? To, to wash themselves mm, with it. To like it. massage and their public image. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I had, I had There was one moment like that as well that I found really strange, which is in the very brief flashback to the 90s, uh, which I love, um, as, the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as the execs says, where they talk about um, wanting to fire uh, Herb Pizzazz, played by um, Stanley Tucci, from horsing around Bojack's sitcom and sort of like saying, you know, does this come from the top? He's like, no, this isn't, you know, this is this isn't Eisner. He's very progressive. And like Michael Eisner, his company produces Bojack Horseman. Yeah. Uh, Tornante is his his studio. And I just kind of thought that was a really weird thing. You didn't have to include his name. You could have just said it was a fictional network and not mentioned Michael Eisner, who I'm sure is, you know, by all accounts, you know, I've never heard that he's not like progressive and that he would uh you know want someone fired because they were gay. But it was just kind of it's one of those things where you think it just seems really weird for you to bring it up. Like mm. it, especially I mean that's maybe more just a problem for me knowing that, you know, Michael Eisner makes you know kind of owns the company that produces the show and that most people that will just be kind of like a tossed off like name drop of you know someone who was a big player in hollywood in the 90s and who ran a tv network at that point um but yeah it was just like that was just one of those things where i thought it's just it's just like such a weird thing to drop in that you know if someone does know about these things it just can't help but seem odd yeah yeah for sure I think this, these are these are other like awkward things that Bojack has dealt with over the course of it of it being um, I can't even say on air streaming you know what I mean um, mm-hmm. 
in terms of, I mean, uh, Bob Weisberg was talking a lot about when he was levied with, well, you know, Alison Brie has zero (laughs) Vietnamese um, ancestry and yet Diane Nugent is Vietnamese and like, what's the deal with that? And he said, oh, you know, we wouldn't make that casting decision now, but she is the character and we're almost done. And you're like, okay, well, you know, that is a better response than any one of the Simpsons had after, um, you know, being levied about a poo. Yeah. But Although they have finally said that uh, uh, um, Hank Azaria has said he's not going to play a poo anymore, but you know it did take them. But it like, took a while, and then also three years, three years, and then a really, and also like a really shitty actual like opening to the show that felt very accusatory of people trying mm. to bring it up, and it was like I can't remember who exactly. I think it was um, Harry Kanobu who um, did um, the. I've forgotten the exact name of the documentary. Is it the problem with a poo? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Was, it the uh, problem with that's it. Harry Valley. Um, and he said, you know, when did the Simpsons become mainstream? When, when, when did they become, you know, the people to quash kind of those voices? And that's like such a heartbreaking thing. And yes, like Bob Weisberg said that about Alison Bree's casting. But then Hilary Swank as Joey Pogo, when admittedly I remember watching Boys Don't Cry and and feeling like that really did so much to me and for me from an early age in terms of understanding trans rights in a way that I didn't when I mean maybe I did know trans people but to me when I first saw it I didn't and how powerful that was and how brilliant Hilary Swank's performance was but that was then and hopefully surely it would be better now that we would actually like just cast trans people in trans roles like why why does that matter Mm. why should it just be like a brave choice for cis people rather than an accurate and respectful choice for casting to, to, to put trans people in roles. And I felt a bit uncomfortable. I, I couldn't really get like why Hilary Swank was essentially playing a Justin Bieber type. Like, wh- why? Like, surely get Bieber or, or, or get like, I, I didn't really understand the thinking behind that because you don't cast Hilary Swank as a man if you are not in some way pointing to her having won an Oscar for playing a trans man mm. and I just felt really uncomfortable with it and I just felt well how have you actually learned Bob Weisberg like I don't I, I couldn't I couldn't get a hold on that and I'm still a bit spinning about it but it's not to take away from how brilliant the rest of the series is but I do think it does affect its integrity and what it's trying to say if it's it's essentially a polemic about Hollywood trying to be better but accepting that Hollywood is made of human beings even if they are more horse than a man or more man than a horse <laughs> like what but but you're still part of the problem surely if you're doing that if that's the decision you're making mm, yeah I, I do feel like even as you know like people are become more uh, evolved in their thinking or however you want to to phrase it around a whole host of issues in terms of representation there are just kind of limits to that sort of thing people are always going to be blinkered by their own experience by their own unawareness of their biases and i feel like in the case of the the diane casting that was very much coming from a place of we want to cast someone who's like a known actor in this role and it was weird it was even weird so even weirder when they do that for like sitcoms uh, for, for for cartoons because oh. like on the one hand yes like will will arnett has a very distinctive 
voice, he's a great choice to play that role. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins is a great choice to play that. Damien Sedaris is great. But like Alison Brie, even though I think she's wonderful as Diane and it's a very good performance and she's a wonderful actor, it's one of those things where I think she doesn't really have the sort of voice that demands that she be cast in that role. And she also doesn't have like the or certainly at the time like she didn't really have the name recognition that way you really think as if oh we're really pulling in like some big extra audience by having her in the cast so it definitely felt like one of those things where people involved with the show didn't really seem to think about it and the possible optics of it until it was pointed out to them and then they're you know at least they admit yeah that was probably not the right choice on our part we're kind of trapped now which, like, like you say, is better than just being completely kind of dismissive of it and kind of completely shitty. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's it, there is a kind of a a metatextual quality to that of being like, oh, it's a show about Hollywood changing that also changes in itself, which is you know kind of fascinating to dig into. But it also does mean that you occasionally you watch it and you think, ah, this feels like a strange, a strange choice in terms of the casting. Again, especially because. There's, if the characters are animated, like there's no reason why you couldn't actually cast a Vietnamese American actor to play Diane, or for to just you know make Diane look like Alison Brie because her Vietnamese qualities aren't really a huge part of the show. Like at most, they are used for jokes about like how oh. You know, she's part Vietnamese, but her family's just like real stereotypical mass holes, you know, because they're all from Boston. <laughs> and like, yeah. it kind of it kind of feels like that was an anchor around the show's neck for most of its running time, where this kind of like offhand joke is like, ah, yeah, this would be funny. And then as it goes along and you're kind of getting involved in these characters' lives and becoming like really emotionally invested in what's happening with them, you kind of help but kind of think, yeah, this is, is really weird that you've cast a white woman to play this this role yeah yeah and i think it's i mean i'm not asking bojack horseman to be to be perfect and like a bastion of of goodness it's just because they are putting those arguments forward and yeah they are Mm. it's i don't want them to say oh but we've already said everyone's blinkered that's the point we're making therefore it's like well no then you should be constantly checking your blind spot surely if that's what you're Mm. saying about people um so yeah one of the things about the show that I think has kind of consistently been one of the things that really sets it apart from a lot of other animated shows is its formal inventiveness and particularly mm. the way in which it uses the, the visuals to illustrate the mental state of its characters and in particularly in its use of memory, like a thing they do a lot, particularly in this final season, which is so much about Bojack looking back on what he's done over the years the people he's hurt is you know they will have the uh, an instant transition you know essentially a jump cut from bojack now to bojack in the past or a character now kind of reflecting on the past and you know this is most obvious in things like the underwater episode from season three or two two or three um where you know the whole episode is essentially silent and is kind of this wonderful uh commentary uh homage to silent cinema or the episode from season five which is at uh his mother's funeral where it's all kind of you know kind of a a sustained monologue where they kind of say okay it's a show where you can essentially do anything because it's animated so why don't we just do the least 
you know with the most and just kind of emphasize performance one of the things from this season that i really liked was the episode where they really dig into princess carolyn's attempts to have it all by showing like overlaid version of her characters kind of doing things at the same time that she is trying to you know plan events that she's at a photo shoot for mothers in hollywood and all this sort of stuff and i thought that that's the sort of thing that you know the show didn't do all the time because it would lose its impact but whenever they did do things like that it was really really effective because it always felt of a piece with the style that they'd already established for sure like I mean I think that's really powerful and they really in terms of what they did with animation to really let themselves without kind of going into any like awkward dream sequences like I think in live action like anything that is it's very hard to present something that's essentially mental or emotional without being a bit tacky Mm. Yeah, it's really just Buffy and the Sopranos and David Lynch. The only people who really got it right. Pretty much. And like, but because it's already animation, you can just have that fluidity. And I think that Princess Carolyn episode is so powerful precisely because you have a sense of all the different selves she's trying to be because they are actually represented on screen and how they're faded and that sense of fatigue that comes across. I also really loved the episode Good Damage, which is in the second half of the final series, where we have Diane's writer's block and like her whole writing process manifested and kind of screaming at her and the aggression and the isolation and the frustration of that Mm. process, which is so real. Like everything that is incredibly real to those characters can be real on screen. And I think a lot of that is like due to Lisa Hannibal, like who's the most incredible character designer and how she you know ran with that with Tuca and Bertie and it makes me incredibly sad that Tuca and Bertie is still still remains cancelled and mm. hasn't hasn't got a second season because I think she used that to even even more brilliant effect in that term in that sense of like it can be incredibly surreal but also in in order to kind of bring forward each character's reality which is also their trauma like Time's Arrow is phenomenal in terms of how it can get across the the internal machinations of someone who has Alzheimer's mm-hmm. yeah. with, without kind of doing anything like in terms of a major switch it just puts you like incredibly into their head and I think that's what Bojack did with all of its characters really well is that kind of direct line to empathy and the art of it is so beautiful. The production design is evocative and also hilarious. And again, kind of a little bit like how we were chatting about um, The Good Place last time. The production design is so dense and it, and particularly in this final series, it really does reward paying attention. Like even again in Good Damage, Diane is sitting there and Blan is on her coffee cup because that was her name when she, <laughs> when she was... Um, working in the sort of Starbucks style place. Um, mm. I also think Blan is a brilliant name. If I get a dog, I will probably call it Blan. Um, <laughs> uh, I really liked um, probably the best running joke in any sitcom of recent memory is Mr. Peanut Butter's um, <sighs> yes. use of the same incompetent sign company. I know, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I love how, you know, we get one little bit of that with... Um, Elefino, where 
when he goes outside for one point, you know, it says like there's a poster which is like grand reopening or under new management, and it says like in bold font with some hashtags <laughs> or something like that, which is great. And then you know the final ultimate brilliant payoff of it of him saying he's going to replace the uh, he's going to replace the stolen Hollywood D uh with uh, a b because he called the sign people and they did it he said it was d as in birthday dad <laughs> and they just which on is honestly on him because that is confusing <laughs> but um i look i that that stuff was always great i always loved spotting the little details there was clearly a lot of attention paid to that sort of stuff in the scenes in chicago where um diane and her new boyfriend played wonderfully by lakeitha stanfield oh who's it who truly is in everything are sitting down and there's loads of as always whenever there's a restaurant or something they put lots of stuff in the background and i thought my favorite one was there was like uh, some meal which said it was with john wayne gravy which <laughs> uh is such a brilliantly chicago reference but also you know uh one thing i thought was really sweet was at one point in this season bojack goes to a a comedy club that he had previously played at when he was younger and you know on the wall behind him there's like loads of photos of uh different uh comedians and obviously there's like pun ones like sarah silverfish and things like that but um there's just one of Brody stevens up there and he's not you know, as a not presented in joke way, it's just a picture of Brody Stevens, who obviously um, passed away um, before the the show aired. And I don't think was a, I don't think he was ever on the show, but he was like a big figure in the LA uh, comedy community. And it was just kind of like a nice little tribute. I think, oh, that's that's really nice that they put that in there. Mm, mm. Uh, and that kind of attention is like just such a wonderful thing to see going out in like pretty much every uh, aspect of the show. And also in terms of, you know, we're talking about the formal style and dreams and consciousness and things like that. I feel like that really was on full display in the penultimate episode, The View from Halfway Down, which takes place after Bojack has uh, relapsed into alcoholism and broken into his old house and, you know, collapsed unconscious into uh, his swimming pool and goes through this sequence in which he encounters all of these people he had who from his life who have since passed away and you establish you know that oh this is a dream he's had like time and time again which is why he's not reacting uh, uh, strangely to it you know this is just the thing that he constantly dreams about but then as it goes along you realize the dream doesn't end and you know he you know sees this performance in which all these people from his past life do like performances and then run through a door into a void and it's this wonderfully kind of bleak uh, episode about you know the afterlife and the question of death because at that point Bojack is uh, is dying and the question of you know what happens and all of the people there are having conversations there's this conversation at the dinner about you know um, the, 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 the notion of if you do something and it makes you feel good is it selfish inherently selfish is it impossible to be truly good and stuff like that and it's just a really strong I think half hour of television or you know 22 minutes of television that really showcases a lot of what the show did well which is it's visually very dense and interesting the acting's really great and the concerns do feel are, are in the episode are given I feel like uh, an appropriate amount of weight and heft to them, even as it's being really funny. 
Okay, here's a question. How do we feel about the very end? Because I think what is so interesting and compelling about the last couple of episodes is I really want to believe that the final episode is what actually happens and we do get to see Princess Carolyn get married and Diane have a point of and and Todd like to have that point of open accountability with Bojack and that Bojack does go to prison but the very first kind of shot of the very final episode is that shot of Diane and Bojack sitting on the roof with a heart monitor going flat above them mm. and then we and then we end with that very shot of Diane and Bojack I don't I don't know I don't I don't want that to be the case I think it's interesting that they've put in that ambiguity but I mm. but I prefer to believe that what we see is real I don't like the idea that it's just a continuation of whatever Bojack's brain needs to needs to do as it's dying <laughs> hmm. uh well in one of the interviews i read with uh bob weisberg he did say it's all that's all true like he didn't he didn't intend for any ambiguity mm. because that heart monitor thing is like it's just a series of rapid fire fake outs where oh the heart monitor is um from an episode of uh horsing around and you know like then it goes horseman dead and then it's like Headless Horseman movie dead at the box office. Horseman <laughs> not, not dead. dead. Yeah, it's just, it, fun. It's it's more. I think it's intended more playfully of them being like, oh no, this act, this is just kind of you know you've been through this intense thing. Let's let a little bit of um, let's deflate things a little bit and be like, oh no, you know Bojack's alive and this is all you know as you say him being held accountable for the things that he's done, the truth catching up to him and that now everyone knows what he had done to Sarah Lynn, and yeah, I. I I didn't read it as being kind of like a um, a dream or anything like that, especially because it does kind of end on uh, it does end on such a melancholy note, which I feel like would not be the case if they were if it was him like you know like say his brain doing what it needs to die, you know, of him and Diane sitting next to each other and Diane, I uh, know Bojack saying to Diane, wouldn't it be weird if this is the last time we see each other? You know, uh, where it is very much like a genuine exploration of the the question of or what all of the bad or painful experiences that you have with a person over the course of your life, or even like the good ones that are just kind of fleeting because that person was ultimately not meant to be in your life for the whole time. You know, adding up to to something, uh, and I feel like the that core of what the episode is ultimately discussing and what the show kind of ends up being about in some ways would kind of be rendered moot to an extent if that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think it's a really mature and accepting ending. Hmm. Like, I think that's just I can't really see how more of a fitting ending Bojack Horseman could have had. Like, Holly Hawk has seemingly cut ties with him. Um, mm. All these people are sort of saying goodbye. Princess Carolyn is essentially the one that he has the most kind of benevolent kind of parting with in that yeah. she's going to pass him on to someone else. And I think it is a really mature and, and accepting ending. 
because for a show that is and, and not entirely different from when we were talking about The Good Place last week like the good, the good Place had the very specific mechanic of rebooting like very literally <laughs> every mm-hmm. time whereas with Bojack it became the most incredible depiction of addiction and depression that it is not acute it's something chronic so instead mm-hmm. of a reboot it's a relapse and what yeah. do you do with the character who relapses and, and what about someone who is genuinely trying to change but I think that's it and, and similar to Barry it's someone even though with Barry it's more to do with like external obstacles to change rather than necessarily internal but Bojack does actually have a will to change but he is so often takes the kind of path of least resistance which is his default which is a deeply alcoholic troubled person he was who's who's brought up by alcoholics and and how early his introduction to alcohol was as like a coping mechanism and how he spread that on to Sarah Lynn and that kind of almost like eternal recurrence Hmm. And yet we managed to finish at a point where Bojack's like, well, I'm probably going to relapse again, but I am kind of willing to keep trying. And everyone's saying, you know, Todd's saying, like, this seems like bad Bojack. I want you, Bojack, the one who wants to change. And also just tracking the kind of the rush of changing and the rush of feeling like you're doing really well and then maybe overextending that, which then Hmm. puts you in a more precarious position to then relapse again is incredible and the number of think pieces and and, and opinions and articles I've read off the back of Bojack Horseman where the number of people who've spoken up about like their sobriety I think is really powerful and important that it has sparked so much kind of conversation and embracing those kind of frailties Mm. um yeah so I think maybe like if I mean, it's cheeky of Bob Weisberg to put that in, but I think, like, just don't be ambiguous. Like, come out and hmm. just, uh, you know, don't don't dangle that in front of us. Yeah. I think also one of the things about its treatment of addiction um, that I found really interesting was the idea that, particularly in this final season, which is really the one where Bojack has accepted he's an addict, he's gone into AA, he's kind of going for all the steps, but how you know kind of admitting that you have a problem and that you are essentially surrendering that that you have you know kind of like surrendered your self to this addiction and that caused you to do all of these shitty things um for some people and particularly you know definitely for him then just becomes kind of like a uh, get out of jail free card of saying like well I was you know I was high or I was drunk all the time so you can't be mad at me and the show being like no everyone can be very mad at you everyone can uh, think that you did terrible things there should be consequences for the things that you done even it, that you did even though you were in an intoxicated state at the time and i feel like the show in the final season really gracefully handled that with the story of the two reporters voiced wonderfully by Paget Brewster and Max Greenfield exploring the Sarah Lynn angle of the story and trying to get to the heart of what it was that Bojack had done and it really kind of like zeroing in on the question of like yes you know we have followed Bojack on this journey we know that he is capable of good does that mean that he should be able to escape you know consequences and I, I like the fact that the show ultimately 
and very kind of firmly is like, well, no, he shouldn't escape them. He should go to jail because, you know, he um, very kind of strong, you know, kind of pretty much very directly caused the death of a, of, a, uh, of a young woman and having, you know, put her on the path that led her to that. And I think that is uh, a really kind of fascinating and illustrative of the complexity that the show really built up over that time. And, and also, I think in the final episode, one of the things I really liked was um, Bojack goes to the the party and he's on his own because Peanut Butter's uh, Mr. Peanut Butter's got immediately distracted and left him. And Todd comes up to him with some kind of like completely ridiculous thing, saying he needs him to stand on his shoulders so they can go on the beach, and then. Bojack's like, why do you need to come out? Just, oh, you, you just kind of seemed lost, and I thought this would give you an excuse to get you out of there. And I really liked, like, even though they had clearly gone through a lot of things and their, their relationship is clearly markedly different to what it was, and there's a lot of pain there, you can still really see the contours of their friendship in that moment. Mm. And that Todd is able to be like, yeah, like you did, you did some awful things, but we still went through some kind of great times together and I still want to help you which I think is like such a lovely note for the show to end on like like you say like the chances are that Bojack probably you know could still relapse especially because the other subtext is like he is an addict to fame as well and the prospect of a comeback is by its very nature quite dangerous for him I think because um, you see that with the interview that he gives in the middle of the or three quarters of the way through the season I guess where he gives this one interview away talks about Sarah Lynn and he gets ahead of the story and he frames it as you know in the most positive light and he gets all of this acclaim and people like talk about how it you know helped them seek help and things like that and then when presented with the option to go on and do another interview he jumps at the chance because it gets, means he gets to be on TV again and I like how the show was never overly explicit about that, but you know, the more it became about addiction, the more it became about you know the addictive personalities as opposed to the particular vice. Mm-hmm. My favorite joke, I think, that just kind of encapsulates everything about Bojack happened in this season, and it's where mm-hmm. Bojack goes to see Princess Carolyn and Ruthie, her adorable daughter, is just kind of wandering around and Bojack has brought this painting that he's trying to get rid of (laughs) but is essentially ostensibly meant to be Ruthie's kind of like christening or or like welcome home present and it is a sort of David Hockney style portrait that references the theme opening theme sequence where Bojack is looking at himself kind of submerged in his pool and it's also a a portent of what is going to happen in kind of the penultimate episode as well but there's a really beautiful um gag that i just think sums up bojack entirely which is where ruthie then in her lovely little baby porcupine way destroys the painting and bojack's like oh you know that was priceless princess carolyn says oh you know it's just a it's just um, a portrait of a narcissist. It's fine. It's it's not worth much. And Bojack goes, narcissist. I thought it was of me. <laughs> and it's such yes, a, it's, such a neat. That was a fantastic, type. great joke. Yeah, it's so good. And I think that's it. That's 
and and to come so late in the day as much as we think bojack has kind of carried on there's still this grain of this strong thread of it to him but it's funny so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what are you going to recommend for the listeners this week? I'm going to recommend the Amazon Prime original series, The Boys, which I finished this mm. week. I think if you are missing Bojack Horseman's mix of tongue-in-cheek, knowingness, a good mix of humour and social commentary. I think you couldn't really get much better than The Boys. I think the first season manages to cover an awful lot of ground in eight episodes. And I really can't wait for the next series. And it's a a big nod to co-founder and our former glorious leader, Matt, for putting (laughs) putting me onto it in the first place. And my boyfriend for badgering me to watch it. Yeah, it's great and has some fantastic performances. And a lovely little, uh, little appearance from Simon Pegg as well. Um, and I'm not familiar with the comics at all, so sorry to purists who maybe didn't like the series. But I watched the series, and it made me want to read the comics. I think it's uh, I think it's cracking. So that's my my recommendation for this week: The Boys. Cool. I am going to recommend a uh, one of those video games they have now. A video game <laughs> called The Outer Wilds, which I've been playing a lot of recently. Uh, an indie game produced by a company called Moebius and distributed by Annapurna who have really been putting out some amazing, interesting indie games over the last couple of years. Uh, It's a game in which you play an alien who's part of this organization called the Outer Wilds, uh, not corporation, but, you know, like it's basically an exploration outfit and you're preparing for your first journey out into the stars. You, you know, kind of go and you get the codes to launch and you walk past a statue of this long dead alien race and it looks at you and you get this kind of like sudden burst of energy and from that point onwards you have 22 minutes until the universe explodes and when the universe (laughs) explodes you go back in time to the point that you woke up and you start over again it's a game where you kind of go through this time loop where you and a handful of other characters are experiencing this same 22 minutes of time over and over again and that means that every time you start you have to kind of go and you know go out and discover things try and figure out what's happening some way to maybe avert the disaster or maybe just to understand the disaster that's about to befall you it's a really great game about uh, exploration you know you kind of set off and you visit these planets as you go around each of the planets has some different aspect to them some of them are there's one that's like a water planet there's one that's um, two twin planets kind of uh, next to each other where sand is passing from one to the other so as you if you wait on the planet that has all of the sand on it structures start to emerge as you wait around but if you go to the other planet the place starts filling up with sand and you have to run around in a very stressful and short period of time trying to find things before they get covered by sand and it's just this really intriguing wonderful game that i think is uh it's a little unhelpful in its early goings like it's not great at um onboarding you and like explaining the mechanics of the game um especially because i think you know it tells you there's this time loop but really you you have as much time as you want to do the tutorial so like if you like are playing it and spend some time just kind of getting a hold of how to fly and things like that the game becomes a lot easier than if you like think okay i've got to go and just like run straight for it um but i found it to be like a really 
interesting, moving, strange, funny, at times terrifying experience. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's well worth uh, checking out. The Outer Wilds, which I think is available, it's definitely available on PS4. I think it's available on some other platforms as well. But yeah, people should should check it out. Sounds like a great uncut gem simulator, Ed. <laughs> yeah, uh, there have been several deaths that have just been incredibly uh, horrible. Uh, the sand, the sand ones are the worst because you just like you're just trapped in a room and you think, okay, I can get out, and then nope, suddenly your the helmet on your spacesuit cracks, and then suddenly you're hurtled back in time twenty two minutes to have to start it all over again. Oh. Um, but no, it's it's really good. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 